Hello and welcome to the Indoor Environment Show. I'm your host, Bob Krell. I'm founder and publisher of Healthy Indoors Magazine and joined uh, at, with my uh, co-host, as always, Mr. Don Weeks, who is the president of the Indoor Environmental Quality Global Alliance, IEQGA. Hi, Don. Hello. How are you doing today? You know, I'm doing all right. I'm actually, ironically, I'm not too far away from where our guest uh, is, is located because uh, we're, we're actually uh, working on a project at uh, his uh, institution. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't happen very frequently, but when it does, it's it's good stuff. So, how are things in Ottawa? A little snowy as usual. But we we have a record breaking uh, 300 centimeters this year, so we're we're shoveling a lot, to say the least. But we're hoping to get down to Florida in March, so that will be good. Good for you. All right. Well, without further ado, let's uh, introduce our guest. Yes. All right. So this particular. Um, uh, webcast is sponsored by ISIAC, the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and, and Climate. And uh, Dr. Andrew Persley had received his uh, PhD from Princeton University in 1982 in mechanical and, and aerospace engineering. And he then worked from 1982 until 1990 for the Center for Building Technology, part of the National Bureau of Standards. For most of that time, Dr. Uh, Persley worked on as a mechanical engineer in the Indoor Air Quality Group. And since 1990, Andy has worked as a group leader, a division chief, and currently as NIST, and that's the National Institute of Standards and Technologies fellow. Greetings, Andy. How are you today? Good to see. There we go. That yeah, was on me. Sorry. You know? Oh, no problem. <laughs> what a what a glitchy start. <laughs> live well, live it's, television. It's, it's, it's a sign of things to come. Yeah. Right. <laughs> So, well, uh, Andy, yeah. how are you, how are you doing there? You, that you're having a good day today, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. So far, I've scratched many things off my list and added many more, and it's another you know another day in the basement, right? There you go. And and for purposes of uh, of of for the audience uh, to know, Andy and I have known each other for more than thirty years. Over, over a long period of time, doing many, many different types of uh, activities, uh, particularly through Ashtray. So it's good to have you here, Andy. Yeah, it's great great to be here. Hope uh, Look forward to the discussion. So why don't I get started then? Um, some of these questions, uh, I've uh, wanted to start it with, you know, which we talked about in the intro, that you have your, your university education in mechanical and aerospace engineering at Princeton University. And, Princeton University, including a master's degree and a PhD. And I wanted to know, with that educational background in mechanical and aerospace engineering, how did you become interested in indoor air quality and the impacts of occupa on occupational uh, health and comfort? Sure. Well, um, you know, you know, you know, despite the name of, of my major, mechanical and aerospace engineering, I, I, I am not a rocket scientist, right? And uh, while the, that department, they were focused on lasers and supersonic airflow and combustion and a lot of things I didn't understand, I, I was very fortunate to be part of an in, interdisciplinary research center that was working on energy efficiency, environmental policy, you know, uh, you know, um, nuclear, you know, proliferation, all sorts of issues with people from all sorts of disciplines, and so I was lucky to be there. And I, while I was working on building airtightness and ventilation all along, 
that time in the late 1970s, indoor air quality was starting to receive attention. You know, I, I remember people putting together contraptions to measure radon concentrations, and we had a geologist in this group who kind of knew that side of the uh, uh, of the equation. And so, you know, indoor quality was being discussed. You know, it wasn't related so much to the department. I was an outlier, but uh, it was I was lucky to be with this group of, group of people. And uh, who was there? Someone there particularly that was your mentor uh, do, as you were getting started in this field? Um, I mean, you know, in, in reality, it was the technician in the lab was a mentor, you know, and there was a, a research person. I don't think he was a postdoc. You know, he you know, I kind of found the people, you know, I'll say in the trenches who were doing the work and, and learn from them. And, and uh, you know, they won't mean anything to you know, this group, but Gautam Dutt and Jan B.A. and Ken Gadsby. And when I was there, we had a, had a, a visitor from Sweden, Ake Blumsterberg, who brought the plans for a blower door. And, and not me, but the technicians and others put together the first blower door in North America uh, in, in that late 1970s time frame. Yeah, no, that, that was a specifically uh, unique uh, you know, operation to get a blower door uh, from Sweden, as you mentioned, and bring them to the United States. Quite a few people who were involved in that process, I would imagine, and some who have gone on to, uh, like Gary Nelson, have gone on to greater fame in terms of, of, of uh, doing blower door type con construction. So, and yeah, and that was the, um, you know, in that group, you know, they, they kind of came up with the idea. Uh, concept of house doctors, right? To go in and, and find the leaks and find the insulation defects and find other defects to bring buildings, you know, energy performance up to where it where it could be. And so people were running around doing blower door tests to measure air tightness. And um, I, I remember there was some meeting and, and we weren't seeing, they weren't seeing a big impact of energy on, on uh, of air tightness improvements on energy efficiency and kind of the director of the center said, well, how good are these darn blower doors anyway? And that led me and, and another fella to uh, go to the same house every week for a year to do blower door tests to see how things, how things changed over time. So I was, you know, definitely steeped in air tightness from uh, all along and, and, and then that uh, topic has has not faded. No, I, in fact, go ahead. Uh, I was say it's it's kind of intrinsically uh, tied to indoor environmental issues. You know, the whole building envelope and and uh, uh, really the energy efficiency. I, I don't think you can separate that anymore. Finally, I think we've come to that point where the paradigm has shifted, where I think people accept the fact that everything you know it's a whole set of systems, and we really have to look at it all together. Yeah. And, and, you know, when we don't, you know, when somebody focuses just on the insulation or just on this fan or just on this chiller, you know, the, things get missed, you know, and, and you got to look at the, it, building is a system of systems. Right. And, and you got to look at how they interact if you really want to understand what the heck's going on. And the occupants, the occupants are a pretty darn important system, too. Yeah, they can have a major effect on how things are actually operating. And uh, sometimes it's operator error in terms of how they go about uh, getting the, uh, sure. uh, the, the you know, loss of heat and everything else in their homes. Uh, yeah, being up here in North in uh, Ottawa, we, we, I see quite a lot of those types of uh, houses and, and uh, buildings as well that you can see on an infrared camera and where the heat loss is taking place. 
So I did note that you were a research assistant conducting independent research on air <laughs> infiltration and associated heat loss in homes. That was your um, towards your uh, doctorate uh, thesis. And you, as you mentioned, it's been a long-term topic in many of your almost 200 pa uh, published papers and articles. Perhaps you could give us, uh, you know, let us know what what the audience know why this subject has been such a large part of your research over the years. Yeah, so you know, so why have I done research on air tightness and related topics? It's it's. Uh, I think the short answer is I like I prefer to do research on topics that are relevant and might lead to an impact, right? And air tightness uh -huh. definitely qualifies because buildings leak, you know, even tight buildings leak, and that relates that impacts energy use, indoor air quality, material durability, moisture management, and, 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 you know, so many other things. And so the fact that buildings, you know, will leak, you know, air and, and that also, because it, that's not always acknowledged, how, you know, that it exists even in um, modern buildings. Um, and infiltration is not a good way to ventilate a building. You know, it's uncontrolled, it's unfiltered, you don't know where it's going to enter. And, and back in those days, uh, I think the quote, maybe it's from 78 or sometime in the 80s, it came, came out of Sweden. The quote was, build tight, ventilate right. And, you know, um, ventilation doesn't have to be mechanical. You know, there, there's all sorts of clever natural ventilation strategies that have been part of buildings for centuries, you know, but, but they have to be thought through and climate sensitive and, and uh, you know, to get the performance you want. So you want a tight envelope so you don't have that leakage and that moisture migration and all sorts of other nonsense. And then, and then, you know, on top of that, you've got to have a reliable ventilation system. So when you say a reliable uh, ventilation system, as you mentioned, natural uh, ventilation <coughs> is certainly one way to go. Uh, but a lot of the buildings and certainly a lot of the homes now in North America in particular are mechanical um, ventilation. What what do you see is is if if any has been improved since uh, you got started in this field uh, thirty years ago? Well, I think you know there's on the residential side there's more of an acknowledgement of the uh, you know in, in many cases the need to have a mechanical ventilation system. I don't think that was that was the case back then. I you know back then there there was some uh, I did some work and some other people were doing work on heat recovery ventilators. So there was some work going on on mechanical ventilation, but it wasn't part of standards, you know, in, in homes. In, in North America, it wasn't part of standards or uh, uh, just yet, but there was buildings were being built, systems were being conceived, you know, um, many, a lot of the seminal work was done in Canada. Um, and, um, you know, that I think that that was a reality. Buildings, you know, commercial buildings have had mechanical ventilation systems for much longer. Um, but I, I think there was just more, more aware, uh, improved ability to measure their performance, you know, was important. And then uh, an appreciation that performance did not always uh, line up with uh, in design intent, you know, that, that too often the system might have been well designed and installed, but over time, you know, sensors went out of calibration or dampers broke or, or whatever it was, and the actual performance wasn't what, you know, the designer had intended. Uh, notice, I think I read a statistic just recently that there's more heat pumps uh, being uh, hmm. 
put into homes than there are new boilers. And I, I wonder if that's uh, yeah. I was wondering if, if your, what's your thoughts on that? Are heat pumps a good answer for a lot of the uh, issues that might be occurring in homes? I mean, I, you know, I'm not not an expert on them, but you know, they certainly have uh, efficiency advantages, right? And you know, there's some people in our division looking at ground source heat pumps. You know, mm-hmm. have other have have other advantages as well. You know, that's heating and cooling, right? It's not necessarily outdoor air ventilation. You know, so uh, it, there are advantages to separating those two functions: thermal conditioning from ventilation, but you know, even if you have a forced air system, not everyone realizes that there's no outdoor air duct attached to that vent, right? So an efficient way to heat and cool, of course, that's important, you know, but how are you, how is the building being ventilated? If it's just that darn leakage still, that unreliable leakage, you're not necessarily always going to make it. And that's a, that's a big point you're making there, Andy. I mean, most of the residential building stock, at least in the United States, is not mechanically ventilated, you know, with the exception of bathroom fans. And, you know, what that leads to is infiltration. If that's your source of ventilation, that's not really truly a controlled balanced system. And, you know, and people, especially of late, have been like, oh, my gosh, you mean air is recirculated in, in my office building? And it's like, well, yeah, it is. And if you have a forced air system in your house, all the air is recirculated, you know, and there's just not a, you know, people don't quite get that. Uh, and, you know, I mean, homeowners got a lot of things to worry about. You know, they don't need to understand the ins and outs of, of building airflow. But, uh, you know, I think there's it's, a lot of people don't realize that that forced air system, while it's doing, it might be doing a great job heating and cooling, it's not necessarily, you know, connected to the outside world. You had recently presented uh, in August 2022 at the uh, NASM workshop entitled Ventilation Management to Reduce Airborne Transmission Risk and Improve Indoor Air Quality. Uh, perhaps you could provide some highlights of that presentation, specifically regarding building uh, air tightness and the measure of carbon dioxide as part of a building assessment? Sure, sure. Well, I, I, I can do that. I couldn't have done it if I didn't, you know, look up the slides this morning. But I did, you know, um, on the last slide, you know, I kind of had a, have a summary. And, you know, the whole topic was about managing ventilation. Well, that, that's quite a concept, right? You know, I mean, often ventilation is, can, can in some cases can be mismanaged, right? So mm-hmm. managing ventilation is a good idea. That's one conclusion. And it's it's non-trivial. But despite my background, it's not rocket science either. You know, otherwise I wouldn't understand it. So um, that's something, uh, one point about managing ventilation. You know, another on, on carbon dioxide, it's, it's a tool, you know, and then tools are good, but there's no tool that can be that, you know, um, will allow you, will, does everything, right? You know, and uh, as they say, not everything's a nail. So CO2 is a tool. If you know what you're doing, you can, you know, you can uh, deal with this issue. But you can't. It's it's not going to, you know, it's, it's not a, a magic. Uh, it's not magic. Um, an, another thought that I shared that day was, you know, a lot of people, you know, in, in response to the pandemic and other other issues, they're all they're pushing innovation and innovation. And we all love innovation. Right. But I. I pointed out that day that operating and maintaining systems as intended, that would be pretty darn innovative, 
you know, because it doesn't always happen. And I, you know, I think it's a really important to do that first, and then you can get fancy with sensors and, you know, novel air distribution concepts and all that. And then, then my last point was, you know, not to, is to don't neglect the neglected buildings. And by neglected buildings, I mean many existing buildings aren't really thought about, you know, a lot of the discussions of novel approaches and so on are focused on new buildings. Um, um, so existing buildings are sometimes left out of the discussion. Multifamily buildings don't always get the attention uh, that they deserve. And I would include public housing. And, and then kind of as a, a, another broad category of uh, ne sometimes neglect, often neglected buildings are older buildings, kind of lower end that don't have the budgets, you know, for, for operation and maintenance. And they don't have the plaques. And we've got to, that's where the people are and that's where the needs are. I didn't just talk a lot about air tightness that day, but I did note that in many buildings, infiltration is the ventilation system. And uh, also that if you, if you want to understand ventilation in a building, you've got to, you know, get a handle on, on the infiltration, you know, how much is happening, where it's happening, you know, and how it varies with uh, uh, weather conditions. So that's, that's a quick summary of that that event last year but, i mean but that's you know to, to you know just restate your point about the, the infiltration that's that's a kind of a big a big issue right because we're not we're not getting our best air that way in in buildings i mean it's coming through interstitial spaces it's coming through crawl spaces through wall cavities i mean there's there's nothing good happening that way that's not good air and, uh, and unfortunately like like you've met you've illustrated there a good portion of our housing stock is old building stock that is probably in underserved communities and really the worst of the worst. Yeah, I mean that that's uh, pretty darn important, and that air isn't filtered either, right? You know, if, if you and uh, you know, that's kind of what the build tight ventilation ventilate right thing and ventilate right. You bring the air in, you, you maybe you have to dehumidify it, maybe you have to filter it. You can do stuff to that air before it gets to the occupied space. Infiltration, you know, you don't you don't have that opportunity. Yeah, that, and, and that's a really key point in terms of way in which people approach this whole problem. The majority of people probably are working and living in buildings that are not as well ventilated as they should be, yet they have very little control over that. I mean, it's usually somebody else's uh, thermostat or somebody else's ventilation system that is, is in place, and yet they have to... Uh, you know, kind of live through that. How, what would you offer in the way of suggestions or thoughts in terms of how somebody in an office building, for example, would uh, would be able to get better ventilation in their building? You know, I think the whole, you know, the relationship between the occupants and the owner operator is really important, right? And um, occupants have all sorts of concerns, you know, regarding their work workspace. And they're all valid. You know, they, they might not be able to deal with them all necessarily, uh, you know, by Monday. But, uh, you know, I think the, the building owners and managers who get it, you know, they, you know, they, they listen and they uh, maybe they have a system for logging complaints or res and responding to complaints. And that's, you know, that, that's just really important. You know, it's I mean, the last thing you want to do is tell someone who doesn't like something about the space that their concern isn't valid that's not gonna that's not gonna get you anywhere and that's gonna create you know a bad uh 
a bad vibe that isn't, you know, isn't going to help. And even if you can't solve all those problems and some, you know, in their air quality building performance problems can be pretty darn complex, you know, and, you know, why, you know, what's that funny smell or why are people getting a headache? It might be really hard to answer that, but the, the fact that people experience a funny smell or don't like something, that's reality. You know, even if you can't pick it up on a meter, it's reality and it's got to be uh, acknowledged. What what even compounds that further is that it's not u uniform distribution across, you know, the, the population of a building generally, right? I mean, some people are affected in ways that others aren't and some people report complaints, some don't. And, you know, everybody's affected slightly different, you know, unless it's a really severe issue, you're not going to have all the occupants complaining about it. And, you know, it's interesting. I haven't looked at one of these in a while, but there have been some surveys over the years, you know, you know, um, office building occupants, you know, kind of what's on their mind, you know, what bugs them, you know, of course, thermal comfort is up there, slow elevators, parking, you know, pretty, you know, practical concerns, you know, I mean, yes, and their air quality is, is often on the list, but it's not, you know, it's not necessarily at the top, right? It's not necessarily the top. It wasn't until three years ago when the pandemic took place. And now now there seems to be a, an increased interest in that whole area. Uh, and that that may change the way the you know, people look at their workplace now. So what's your thoughts on that in terms of what's happening with you yeah. know, after the pandemic? I mean, I, I am not in the job of predicting the future and uh you know but the <laughs> well awareness played. is good I mean, the awareness is good how long it'll last what kind of changes will result that's kind of hard to say but there's no doubt that the level of awareness you know is, is something i've never seen before you know and awareness isn't always understanding but you know you got to start somewhere you know and uh you know hopefully um some things can change for the better, you know, um, but, you know, in, in response to this, you know, to this tragedy, right? And, uh, you know, we'll see how, the, how that goes. The building industry is not necessarily the fastest moving industry, right? It ain't right. IT, right? And that's just, you know, how you, how things change is, you know, that, that's a tough one. Well, humans it generally is. have a uh, short attention span too. At least, at least uh, in in recent history, right? You know, we we have this catastrophic uh, once in a lifetime, hopefully once in a lifetime pandemic, uh, and you know, our indoor environments, I think, are on the you know at least in an elevated position, even in the general public's mind. But how long will that last? And I think that's fleeting if we we don't move yeah, forward. Yeah, so. I mean, I don't know. You know, I think unfortunately, sometimes important policy decisions are kind of governed by the like kind of the crisis of the of the week right and there's the attention span of of media and and some other uh movers and shakers is, is not people don't look long term some too often you know often yeah. enough you know and and you know in the building industry you see that as a focus on first costs right not operating costs and and uh and then then this whole you know this uh this crisis of the month syndrome doesn't uh, doesn't do any good either no, it doesn't. This week, we're all concentrating on a, a train wreck out in Ohio. I mean, certainly it's important, but it, it, it's not, uh, you know, it's going to be re replaced by something else next week and the week after as well. 
but so but you know, there's there's lessons to be learned from that training, sure. right? And will those lessons be learned? And will you know some of the hard work and and you know decisions and improvements happen? You know before um, you know before people kind of start thinking about something else. I don't I yeah. don't know. We'll see. We'll see. So one of the things that you did talk about in that presentation also is the measurement of carbon dioxide as part of a building assessment. And uh, what is your current thoughts about that? I mean, you know, as I said, I mean, it it is useful, especially if the practitioner knows what they're doing and thinks about it. You know, there's no there's no mystery there. You know, it's it, it can be used for a different thing, different things. It's, it can be used as, in essence, as a tracer gas. And that, you know, where, where you um, monitor the change in concentration of CO2 or whatever the tracer gas is, do some math and learn something about ventilation performance that, you know, there's no mystery there. You know, the only difference is, you know, carbon dioxide is uh, often has a convenient and, um, tracer gas injection mechanism. So, but you got to know what you're doing and it's not magic. And, and, you know, all these tracer gas approaches, you know, um, you know, require the validity of certain assumptions or the confirmation or checking on them. And, and sometimes people who apply CO2 to get, get a handle on ventilation don't really realize, you know, kind of what they're assuming uh, implicitly, and, and therefore, you know, they may make some, uh, you know, you know, not, uh, you know, their interpretations may be a little bit off the mark, or a lot of it off the mark. And then, you know, heaven forbid, you <clears throat> calibrate the sensors, right? <laughs> well, I mean, it, isn't the occupant density a big player in that too? If you're trying to, you know, use CO2 as a tracer on a really low occupant density. <clears throat> Low or high, you know, I mean, well, right, like occupant density and occupant extremes, timing, yeah. you know, relative yeah. to the measurements. And, and, and that, you know, that's uh, a, uh, you can make it fancy and that's your tracer gas injection rate. You know, what's the rate at which CO2 is released? Well, it depends on how many people they are, what they're doing, how, you know, their, their kind of their size and their age, which impacts how much CO2 they generate. And then, you know, their sca- occupancy is not a constant, you know, and so when the occupancy starts, when the CO2 generation starts, that dictates the time history, you know, of the CO2 concentration. And you gotta, you gotta account for that when you make the measurements and interpret the results. But the, again, that's not, you know, um, a mystery. You know, when, when people go in and they, they make one measurement, you know, and then they say, and then they, uh, basically do a steady state analysis and say, here's the, here's the ventilation rate. Well, you know, they're, they're doing, making all sorts of assumptions that they aren't acknowledging. And and that's unfortunate. And, you know, I mean, when I measure something once, it's usually wrong, you know, you got to measure things more than once to have some faith, you know? Yeah. That's uh, the old uh, measure twice uh, before you start building something. Right. Yeah. At least. Right. You can't can't get standard deviation without three. Right. Yeah, exactly. But that happens a lot, you know, as far as the field practitioners, oh, the yeah. IQ consultants in the country, you know, they're, they're doing snapshot measurements of everything, snapshot of, you know, ventilate, you know, CO2, temperature, uh, you know, they go out and take spore traps if they're looking for mold, and they, take, you know, take a couple of spore traps in five minutes, and they're trying to, you know, extrapolate that into 24-7, 365 days a year. It doesn't work. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, of course, time, you know, costs money, you know, you, you can't expect someone to do it, and, uh, 
you know, a year long study of a building, you know, as a practitioner, you know, who uh, is getting paid, you know, X dollars, not, you know, a hundred times X, you know, but you got to, you know, you got to understand what you need to do to get results that are meaningful and and reliable. And, you know, it it may be, may require a bigger budget than the uh, client has and then you know that, that's a that's a, a reality that, that i guess has to get dealt with and it maybe isn't always easy and certainly it isn't when it's an individual homeowner i can i can guarantee you there um you know buildings themselves office buildings or schools i think that may be a different category but certainly in in people's homes it's you know they, they expect having done this many a times they expect that they can get a lot for a very little price and it's very difficult to convince them otherwise to say the least so and it, you know i i uh, hear there's there is a few less unscrupulous people out there in the real world i you know, oh, I've never you met that? anybody like that myself but i hear stories <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there are some. Let's just put it that way for now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, keeping on the theme of, of carbon dioxide as an assessment tool, you're well aware, of course, that many investigators use, you know, use the measurement of carbon dioxide to indicate a problem building that, and that at a level of, of 1,000 parts per million, if in the building is considered then that that's unacceptable. You know that was because you've been involved with this for many, many years, but many of the audience may not know that, that this is no longer a part of uh, ASHRAE standard 62.1 and hasn't been since the late 80s. So uh, can you talk about your thoughts on this matter? What can be done to lessen the reliance on this on this measurement? Well, I can I can share some thoughts. I'm not sure what can be done to lessen the reliance, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, it was removed. You know, it was last in the standard, in the 1989 version of the standard. And it was removed because there was a tremendous amount of confusion generated by that value. You know, people were like, you know, if you have a thousand and one PPM, evacuate the building. Hmm. Right. And if you have 999, you know, no problem. You know, and it, it's more complicated than that. And so, you know, removing it from the standard did not eliminate the confusion. And I still see references uh, to the CO2 limit in 62.1, you know, and, and they, in, in, you know, papers in uh, high-end academic journals, you know, where somebody never checked the reference, you know, which, which just kind of blows me away. So that confusion remains. So how do you lessen it? Well, um, you know, lessen reliance. I, I don't know, you know, I, I think it's too late. People aren't going to stop measuring CO2. I think, you know, that's that's you know a given. I think for a while there, I was I was in kind of suggesting maybe we shouldn't do that, but I've given that one up, you know. But so it's you know it's a matter of helping practitioners and uh, people who are hiring practitioners to understand the limitations, to understand the proper application, and you do that. I mean, you can write, and maybe someone will read it. You know, you can speak and maybe someone will listen and it's just kind of getting the word out. And, you know, I mean, I, uh, whenever I review a paper and they say, you know, they cite standard 62.1, 1000 PPM limits, I put a comment in there. So there's one correction, but you know, who, who, who reads all this stuff and who listens? I, I, I don't know, you know, I don't know what the answer is to that, except, uh, you know, honesty and thoroughness and your remarks and, 
you know, and, and talking to people and then speaking up when somebody says something that isn't quite true, right? And uh, I, I don't know, you know, mechanisms like this, uh, you know, th this, this, uh, uh, what do we call it this? Uh, this episode or this, you know, a webcast. Would there be you good. go. Your webcasts and, and other veggies, these are good, you know, they get sure. people uh, out there and, and, you know, and some, you know, hopefully some folks listen and, and absorb it or or even just just knowing that there's a question right is is good because then if you you know they might like dig into what is the question you know maybe am i doing something wrong and uh I, you know i don't know the answer you know how do you affect change right well you did try to do that uh, andy to give you credit you put out a position document through ashray on uh in indoor air quality measurements of and carbon dioxide Perhaps you could give us a little details of what that uh, particular position uh, sure. statement said. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I can't take all the credit. I chaired the committee and, you know, with a lot of smart people. Right. And, uh, you know, they did they did the work and I just sort of moved things around and, and scheduled meetings and tried to deal, you know, deal with potentially contradictory comments. So all credit to the committee. And. You know, the, the, uh, there are several positions in there. It's not a guidance document, right? You know, these position documents that ASHRAE puts out kind of makes a statement about a topic, you know, and among other things, you know, the, the position document uh, came out and said that, you know, indoor CO2 concentrations, while they can be useful, you know, they, they are not an overall indicator of indoor air quality. You know, they may be a fair indicator of contaminant levels associated with the number of occupants in a space, but there's a lot of other contaminants that really have very little to do with the number of occupants, like contaminants from outside, contaminants from materials and furnishings and so on. So indoor CO2 concentrations are useful, but they're not the whole picture of IAQ. Another uh, conclusion was that, you know, there's, the, the existing evidence for the impacts of carbon, di carbon dioxide on occupant health, comfort, and performance are inconsistent. You know, some studies show some real impacts, others don't. And therefore, it, it'd be premature to uh, change the existing ventilation and IEQ standards, you know, until we understand better. Um, I, there's, there's four more. I can go through them or you want to... Uh, no, why don't you highlight them okay. for us? Yeah, another one, you know, we, we started this, our first, we started this developing this position document before the pandemic. So our first meeting was a couple of weeks into it. And, you know, so we, you know, ASHRAE had a, uh, a parallel, a different position document was being developed on airborne um, infectious diseases. I forget the title of it. That came out not that long ago, but we looked at that topic to a degree and we pointed out that, you know, using indoor carbon dioxide concentrations to assess the risk of airborne uh, disease transmission, any effort to do that, you need to uh, think about or account for what, you know, the definition of acceptable risk, the type of space, and the fact that CO2 and, and infectious aerosols behave very differently. You know, for example, you know, you put a, a portable air cleaner in the space, you can remove you know, those infectious aerosols pretty effectively, but it's not going to affect the CO2 concentration. So they're not the same. Um, another comment, which I, uh, uh, position we 
took, which I mentioned earlier, is that you can use the difference between indoor and outdoor CO2 concentrations, you know, to learn something about building ventilation uh, using established tracer gas measurement methods. And that, you know, if you're going to measure and interpret CO2 concentrations, you need to think about sensor accuracy, sensor location and calibration. You know, all, all those are, are important. And then finally, you know, air cleaning strategies to target only CO2 won't necessarily improve overall indoor air quality because of all the other contaminants that um, won't necessarily be removed by those technologies. So those were the six positions, you know, that, that are in there. There's also some recommendations for, you know, research in, in different areas and, and a few other things. That document is, uh, is, is, you know, free for download. I could pop the link in the chat if you put it in the chat and we'll, uh, we'll yeah. put it up on the screen for Let's the see viewers. if I can uh, do that without um, my head exploding. But uh, <laughs> if it's a, if a problem, just let us know. And I, I, I'm sure that I can download it. There we go. The there yeah, it is. It's all, it is. all set there. So we'll make sure yeah. it's part of the, uh, of the uh, program as well. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, and I mean, there's, you know, there's a way to maybe affect some change, you know, let people know this thing is out there and it's free. You know, the, the other is. option is to uh, generate hard copy, hard cover versions and, and smack people in the head with it. <laughs> I'm not sure that's going to work too well, but yeah. you never know. <laughs> not, and I never advocate violence, of course. There you go. <laughs> so you brought up a Go ahead, uh, Bob. Say, what we will do is that that link, since it is kind of a long link, it's not a nice little uh, yeah, pretty URL, but we'll put it in the uh, show notes so it'll, it'll be uh, available there as an actual uh, clickable link. You know, when I, whenever I look for it, you just search on ASHRAE position document CO2. It probably it comes up like right away. Yep. Yep. I think it's a valuable document and certainly one that uh, many people should be downloading and using some of the recommendations as you describe them. Um, one of the things that has happened, though, and you mentioned it somewhat in, in, in your presentation about this document, the position document, considerable amount of interest has been you know, expressed on the measurement of carbon dioxide as a measure of the risk of airborne infectious disease transmission. Uh, can you tell us briefly, or, or and at length, that's actually, that's why we're here. Can you tell us what you have found in your research regarding how carbon dioxide concentrations relate to this risk? I mean, I, I haven't done any research on the relationship between CO2 and infection risk, but I've read and I've talked to some smart people. You know, I think the, uh, um, excuse me, the position document states it pretty well. You know, it's, 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 it, it's not the same. You know, it, it's the CO2 level, you know, is not a direct, you know, indicator of risk or a direct indicator of uh the airborne levels of a virus, but, uh, you know, again, it's a tool, right? And, and so, um, but, you know, what, I, what I've noticed as I've looked at some of these things, you know, in, in the context of, of managing the risk, some people measure CO2, and they're really using it as an indicator of ventilation, whether there's enough ventilation or not. And that, that's fine. You know, I, I get that. Some, sometimes it's used to, uh, as a more more direct indicator of risk using this this concept of rebreathed air, right? Because the level of CO2 in a room is going to be, you know, uh, a function of the amount of air in that room that was exhaled by other people. And if you want to stay away from what other people exhale, you know, the CO2 can be a useful concept there. So 
those are two categories, using CO2 as an indicator of ventilation, using CO2 as a some kind of an indicator of risk. And then the third category is measuring CO2 and, I, and, I, and, and never explaining why. I, I see that sometimes. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, um, uh, you know, I, I did a, a little paper for the, the conference, the Air Infiltration and Ventilation Center conference last fall, where I just kind of looked at, you know, what people you know, we're doing with CO2 in the context of the pandemic. And, and those are, you know, I'm going to rattle off some of those categories. We're doing a more, you know, systematic and formal literature review of that topic uh, right now. Is that NIST or is that for Ashley? Yeah, NIST, you know, NIST, yeah. and I have a postdoc working on that. But uh, Great, great. Yeah, so so the, the, you when... know, this, the AIVC, that was just a, con you know, not just a conference paper, but it was, uh, it was less formal, you know, rigorous, you know, literature review. And there's all these techniques I didn't know about and, and criteria for literature reviews. And I'm working with the one of the librarians at NIST, and it's it's uh, been proven to be pretty interesting. Yeah, I would imagine it would be. Yeah, we'd be interested in hearing about that, uh, you know, when it does, in fact, get published. Bob, you have a... Yeah, I was going to say, one of, one of the things that I found really uh, somewhat confusing, for the general public at least, is uh, during the pandemic, we kind of, or at least the cognizant authorities somewhat conflated the term air change with air cycle, you know, or, you know, the effective air change and all these different terms. And really, that was really for just, you know, using portable air filtration devices to remove particulate out of a, a given space. Uh, and, and like you mentioned, the, you know, CO2, any gaseous contaminant, it's not affected by a HEPA filter. So you're, you're really not, you're addressing airborne particles. And, but, but I think there's this conception that, oh, you, you know, you get air changes by putting a, a HEPA filter in a classroom. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, there, there's terminology is important. Words matter, right? And there's yeah. a lot of, even among professionals who should know better, there's kind of like sometimes some loose, you know, uh, um, wording going on, right? And and I've learned over the years, like ventilation, to some people, ventilation means outdoor air and the story. And to other people, ventilation just means whatever's coming out of that supply duct, independent of how much outdoor air it is. So it's really important to be clear by what you mean. And, you know, the, the, the air change issue and the effective air change issue is, you know, just kind of brings that, you know, uh, right up uh, right in our faces, how important it is to be clear. And there's, you know, you know, not to pick on engineers, but there's a lot of really smart engineers who don't write very well or, or speak very clearly. And, and, and that's no excuse, but it's it's uh, but it's true. I wouldn't nobody, know that about you know, that. Nobody we know, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're specifically talking about mechanical engineers when you when you make that comment, don't you? Yeah, I'll, well, I'll let Lynchy know about uh, what your what your thoughts are about her profession. How's that? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I uh, <laughs> that's you know, comments too, Don. You know, yeah, it's you, true. You need, you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've, we've manner. all worked with some really, really smart people who can't explain what they're doing. Yeah, no, know, I agree. And they might as well not be doing it if if they can't relate it to anybody. And that's uh, true. You know, so when I, I do work with an engineer, particularly someone earlier in their career who can write, I'm you know, I remind them, you, you got a leg up, you know, yeah, that's true. You can, that's true. You can communicate. That's, that's, a, that's it, a big thing, right? Though. I mean, it, being, being able to uh, translate information, you know, and make it uh, something that's actionable Intel for somebody other than your discipline is kind yes. of paramount, right? To have it be usable, you do all this great research, but if no, you know, if it doesn't ever become anything actionable, 
Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm totally agree on that one. Yeah. So I noticed that, you know, that you've done a number of papers on ventilation performance. And in, in a recent study, you stated that many indoor air quality research studies have not included adequate evaluation of building ventilation and its impact on indoor contaminant con concentrations. Can you kind of summarize your, your findings regarding yeah. the inac inadequacy of ventilation evaluation as part of an yeah. IEQ building assessment? Sure. I mean, I haven't looked at it this in a while, but if, if you look at, you know, I was looking at published, you know, research on indoor air quality, specifically, you know, studies where folks measured uh, indoor contaminant concentrations. And in way too many cases, you know, there was no description of the building ventilation system or any characterization of the ventilation rates or other, other aspects of ventilation performance. And I don't know how you can interpret indoor contaminant levels if you don't know what's going on with the ventilation. You know, you can measure the concentration today and tomorrow it's twice as high. Well, if you didn't measure the ventilation rate, you have no idea why it's twice as high. Was the ventilation rate lower? Was the source strength higher? You know, you have no idea. And kind of a, along with that, sometimes you'll see ventilation re rates reported uh, in some kind of a publication, but you have no idea how they measured them, you know, or the, or the uncertainty, you know, in the measurement. And I, you know, I just can't imagine a journal paper being accepted where someone reports VOC concentrations, but never described how they measured them, you know, but somehow ventilation kind of, you know, can, uh, discussions of ventilation can kind of get, get away with that, which is, which is really unfortunate because it's so darn important, you know, and, and don't measure, you know, if you don't measure it or you don't tell me how you measure it, I, you know, I don't know what's going on. So that, you know, that used to really upset me, but I've, I've kind of gotten past that. I, you know, I, you know so, uh, um, that, that comes with age, just in case you're wondering, Andy. <laughs> I think so. I think, you know, it's come with my age. And, uh, well, I kind of have a quota, you know. I, I kind of have like three or four things I can get upset about, you know. And I, so that's kind of off the table, and I'm getting upset about other things instead. What are you getting upset about nowadays? Well, you know, <laughs> that's, not, that's not a that great much. question. It's not, it's not worth it, right? <laughs> okay, no problem. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to mention that you are also a past chair of the ASHRAE committee responsible for standard 189.1 design of high performance green buildings. And it's my understanding that that standard provides total building sustainability guidance for designing, building, and operating high performance green buildings. And it's also a, a very big part of the International Green Construction Code. So what can you describe with the most critical aspects of that standard that can lead to high performance green buildings? Sure. Before, before I answer that, I'll put my you know, standards purist hat on and it doesn't provide guidance. It provides requirements. Okay. Right? Okay. Provide any guidance. It's, you got to do this. And, and it's not only an integral part of the international green construction code, it is the technical content. You know, mm -hmm. they kind of have their own front end on, on enforcement, but basically all the requirements in 189.1 are, you know, that is the international green construction code. You know, so what's the most critical aspect? I, you know, I, that's a tough one. You know, it's energy efficiency, carbon emissions, water use, impact on the site, indoor environmental quality. You know, for this crowd, uh, obviously, I have to say that IEQ is the most important one, right? But, uh, <laughs> but you know, you asked about getting the high performance green buildings. I, I think what's really important is, and we kind of referred to this earlier, is an integrated approach, you know, mm -hmm 
Unfortunately, our standards and this standard is written in sections. So you do the energy stuff and you're done. And then you do the water stuff and you're done. You know, and it's and, and, you know, the way the complexities of buildings and systems really requires an integrated approach. And people have been talking about that for for decades. And it's not clear exactly how you do it, but it's, it's really important. And then, you know, so an integrated approach, that's pretty darn uh, critical. And then the other is follow up after the building is occupied to maintain that intended performance. And the 189 standard has some, has, you know, it's a design standard, so it, it can't really be an operation standard, but it does re have requirement for developing plans for operation. So how are things going to happen, you know, um, in terms of inspections and, and even occupant surveys into the life of the building. So these plans are written and they're given, you know, uh, to the building owners and operators at some point, whether they implement those plans for operation is, you know, the standard can't really speak to that, but I think that's a, a, a good start. Oh, is that under continuous maintenance, that particular standard? Yeah. Yeah. They just met today, you know, so it, it was last published um, in 2020. So uh, it's due. Know, they're kind of scrambling to get the yeah. last little bits and pieces approved before the 2023 publication. It's all a, it's really complicated because it references standard 62.1, which was published last year. So they're kind of scrambling to keep up with 62.1 and then the energy efficiency standard 90.1. <laughs> so they want to get it published and they want to get it done in time so that the International Green Construction Code, which will come out next year, you know, it doesn't, you know, it, it's, it's a complicated scheduling issue. <laughs> to say the least, that's for sure. Yeah. But that's usually the case with these, uh, Standards, you know, at least they're getting out every three years, thereabouts, and that that's yeah. uh, better than a lot of other other situations. To say to yeah, least. I mean, everybody tried to link up with the code cycle, which which is a good thing, um, because you know you can write a standard, but they're all voluntary, and until mm -hmm. it gets in the building code, <clears throat> and is hopefully enforced, it, it's I would call it an intellectual exercise, but it's not, you know, it, it's not a requirement. It's you know, it's all voluntary, so you've got to get it into the codes, and that's that takes time. And you brought a very good, uh, important point about operations and maintenance of these systems uh, that are put in place initially. I mean, you're right. It, it, one of the problems that I have seen in these uh, buildings, green buildings, uh, you know, under lead and under other um, co or codes that are out there, is that they give you an, an you know an initial approach to the problem, particularly in new buildings. But then there's no, there's very little in the way of follow up. I'm, I'm not really sure how do you go about doing that. As you've mentioned, it's hard to enforce that. But it, it would also be very important for people to realize, you know, it's not just the first cost; it's the continuing cost that's going to going to be a, yeah. an issue over time. So how do how do we get that across? I I, I don't know. I mean, you you both know this. You can go to any building; you will find problems if you look. Sure. You and you don't have to look hard. You know, just go in the mechanical room and then look around. You'll see things that need to be fixed. They may not be killing you uh, in terms of the energy bills or in their air quality, but they, if they're not fixed, they may, you know, be a big problem down the road. So, you know, you got to take a look, you know, you got to recommission, you got to, you know, invest in the maintenance. And, you know, I kind of like, you know, I think the party line is that will pay off, you know, in terms of, you know, uh, reduced utility bills and increased occupant 
productivity and reduce sick leave. Um, you know, how do you make that happen? You know, kind of given that our, you know, the, the building code mechanism is about occupancy is about new buildings or major renovations and, and there's not really a good mechanism you know for uh you know making things happen in, in in the real building and you know we've all we all make that argument that the most expensive thing in the building are the people sure right the the salary per square meter of floor area is about 100 times the energy bill you know but and and you compare that to the first cost the problem is the people or the institutions who pay those different bills, they're not always the same person, right? Yeah. You know, so there's an investor who creates the building and then there's someone who's paying the salary and there might be someone else who's paying the utility bill. And so on a, maybe a societal level, the economic argument is there, but if you look at, you know, each person's wallet, it can be more challenging. But the question is, how do we stop from falling short? Because my whole time in the IQ industry, I've been doing this, 37 years now uh it, it seems like you know we, we we've been talking and talking about all these things we should do and all these great you know all the research and all the great ideas and and, and but when the rubber meets the road it, most buildings are still not operated very well and they're not really even constructed that well i mean in general it's just we haven't ha, have we learned anything about indoor air quality in the last 20 years i mean have, have we ever have, put it this way have we actually taken it and put it in practice right but we've learned a lot i mean no yeah. question I, that's what I was going to say. We've learned a lot, but if, what, what, what have we done? You know, what have we done with what we learned? And that, that's the challenge. I, I don't know the answer. I guess the, you know, one answer is for uh, all of us more senior people to retire and get out of the way so the younger people with ideas and energy can solve these, you know, solve these problems. I, I, I don't know. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a tough one. But we started when we were younger. That's that's the point. I mean, yeah. I, and I think we need to make this. This this doesn't, you know, th this isn't a minor point, Andy. And you, you, Don, and I, I mean, Don's a little Don's a little older than us, but not that much. You know, it's like just a shade. You know, it's like we've been doing this for a lot of years, and it's it, it seems like sometimes like I mean, I feel sometimes like I'm you know going on deaf ears with things. <laughs> it's frustrating. I, yeah, I I, uh, I don't know. Ask me tomorrow. Maybe I'll have a better answer. I don't know. <laughs> you know I mean, you can keep plugging away. Yeah. Well, you, know, yeah. you speak the truth, right? Mm -hmm. You, uh, you know, you, you, you talk to people and you, uh, um, and, you know, you kind of, maybe, you know, you, you kind of inspire and, and, and mentor early career folks and, and get them off to a good start and, and encourage them. And, uh, um, and you have yeah. some personal experience with that, Andy. I mean, you have a, a and you know, a daughter, uh, Sarah, I believe, right? Uh, who's uh, who's following in your footsteps to some extent? To some extent. I mean, she designs commercial building HVAC systems. I don't know how to do that. You know, I, you know, you, I, uh, um, and I mean, it's interesting. You know, I mean, there's a lot of passion among the, you know, the the younger and early career folks, a lot of passion about sustainability and climate change, you know, they're, they're, they're true believers and they want to make a difference, you know, and I think that maybe back in the day, people got, didn't necessarily get in this field because they saw the big picture the same way. So that, they, you know, that's really nice to see. And they, uh, you know, and they're all about networking, right? You know, she's real active in her local chapter and they do all sorts of things and support each other and, you know, so that that's really encouraging, and hopefully it'll pay off. For no, I'm the, sure it will. Yeah, I'm sure it will. Too long. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, last question. We're running uh, down to the end of the hour and uh, just wanted to know if you have some publications and guidelines that you're working on currently. I mean, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a member of the 189 committee and the 62 committee, but I'm not uh, totally absorbed uh, the same way I used to be. I mean, I mentioned, you know, this literature review of how CO2 is being used in response to the pandemic. So that's, uh, you know, that's something we're <clears throat> I'm working on with, with a colleague at NIST right now. Uh, I published a paper last year on, <clears throat> you know, how to calculate CO2 concentrations for a given space to use them as a metric of ventilation, you know, which makes more sense, I think, than a, using a, the same value for all space types, because as we talked about before, spaces are different in occupancy, which relates to timing and CO2 generation rates, and their spaces differ in how much ventilation they're required. Um, and so we're working on doing some work uh, on to calculate some of the uncertainty and some of those metric values and the other thing I'm, I'm writing, spending a lot of time writing these days, is a uh, to-do list for my retirement. Right? So, <laughs> oh boy! You know, well, uh, you know, I, I, I having uh, been in retirement stage for the last two and a half years myself personally, three years, I can you're understand what you're doing. <laughs> no, you're not retired. Well, well I'm, I'm I'm not... you know, I mean, I'll be like Don. I'm not going to stop working, but I'm right. going to, you know, stop drawing a salary and start, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, drawing some other things. And I'm, I'm actually, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to see that. And, uh, you know, which is a little freeing, right? You know, maybe for sure. When it, When is your anticipated uh, retirement? I don't, I, I've got to talk to someone in HR. I don't, you know, I, I don't know. But probably, you know, in, the, in this time frame next year, we'll see. Wow. You know. Coming up. It's coming up. But, yeah. you know, uh, I don't know. What, what, you know, a couple of weeks ago, it was 41 years at NIST. That's, that's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. You know? that's a long time. Yeah. Yeah, there's no reason to do that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it went I wouldn't fast, go that though, far. It? it went really fast. Yeah, sure it did. I know, I know. It's, uh, it's disconcerting, isn't it? Yeah, well, when you start thinking that 41 years ago is actually 1983, and you know some of us were working at that time, so I mean it it, it does seem to be have gone really quickly. Yeah, uh, yeah. it really has. So, um, thank you very much, Andy, for coming on to the show, and um, I really appreciate you answering these questions. Uh, Bob, you want to wrap us up? Yeah. So, um, yeah, same here, Andy. It was it was great, uh, great seeing you again. It's been a while, and um, just really informative. Wish you had more time. We'll have to have you back. And we'll talk about that further. I want to remind everyone that this uh, show, uh, Indoor Environments, is a collaboration between the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate, ISIAC, and the uh, Indoor Environmental Quality Global Alliance, IEQGA, and produced by Healthy Indoors Media where I fall in. So, um, yeah, so we'll, we'll be back again. We'll be back again next month. Um, we haven't set the date yet, have we? No, we haven't, but we I know. will. It, it, and we do, you know, it's, it's one of those things. When you do a once a month show, you can you can kind of move it around a little bit. Um, so anyway, we're, we do this show every month. Don, Don, Don and I will be back, uh, hopefully. <laughs> yes, and, uh, I hope to yeah. be back, yes. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you never know. Uh, but it, it's, uh, you know, cer certainly um, all these topics are really great. Uh, and we really appreciate the opportunity to bring experts like Andy on here and, and have uh, – really frank conversations about some uh, important information. So uh, until next time, we will uh, see you all on the Indoor Environment Show. I'm Bob Krell, Don Weeks, and for Andy personally, thanks again. Yeah, thank you.